Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation With Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on the new episodes. In today's episode, we speak with Southwestern alumni Kenneth Wu. Ken is a senior vice president of business and legal affairs for the acclaimed management and film, TV, and commercial production company, Anonymous Content. He is a high-level transactional attorney and a versatile leader with experience handling high-profile scripted and non-scripted projects across feature film, television, and new media. Ken is a savvy deal negotiator with extensive contract drafting experience and a seasoned production attorney. He's got a solid reputation as a fair dealer and a great problem solver. Ken will answer questions about his work at Anonymous Content, some of his favorite deals from his past, and give the inside scoop on what life is like as a transactional attorney in the entertainment world. Without further ado, a conversation with Kenneth Wu. Ken Wu, I want to thank you so much for coming tonight. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, my name, by the way, is Orly Ravid. I'm the director of the Biederman Institute. Ken is a, a proud alum of Southwestern Law School. He is presently the senior vice president of business and legal affairs for the acclaimed management, film and television and commercial production company, Anonymous Content. Prior to him joining Anonymous Content in 2015, Mr. Wu is a business and legal affairs consultant for clients such as Sony Pictures Television Business Affairs, Sony Pictures Television Legal Affairs and L Plummer Media. He previously also worked as the director of U.S. Business Affairs for Sony Pictures Television, where he renegotiated, can't wait to talk about this, uh, the Sharks on Shark Tank and Beyond the Tank, and as counsel for BBC Worldwide Productions, where he managed production legal issues on scripted and non-scripted shows, including Dancing with the Stars and Top Gear America. Wu is a graduate of Southwestern Law School scale program. We are so proud. Um, and he received before that his master's in international relations from the University of Southern California and his BA in political science from the, the University of California in Santa Barbara. He plays the violin and was the assistant coach to the men's tennis team. He's also fluent in Mandarin and Taiwanese dialect. Uh, and I, I just scratched the surface of your bio, Ken, and it's so impressive. And again, we're very, very happy to have you here tonight. And so thanks for reading that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could have read a longer one, but I just want to I feel a little feel a little bit embarrassed, but thank you. No, oh, no, it's 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 really impressive. Um, and and by the way, I should note that Anonymous has a pretty fabulous uh, architectural style building as well um, to match Southwesterns. Yes, so, we have people here taking photos constantly. It, it's it's really. I don't get it. Yeah, you know, it's not your um, style. It, 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 no, but it, it, well, it used to be a uh, warehouse, so my office the walls are paper thin and there's like stuff that's sticking out and it's, it's in like an odd shape that makes no sense. There's no functionality. Yeah. So I'm not surprised yeah. to hear that, but I happen to be a fan of that sort of thing. But in any way, um, so, you know, we, we, they can't all be Bullock's Wilshire, I guess. Um, all right. So, you know, I want to dive into how your career began, but just to first start off with your current, um, you know, your current work, like basically, can you, I mean, you know, we describe what anonymous is and a lot of people here probably already know, but just 
to give us a sense of what Anonymous is and does, and then what your work there, how you know what your what kind of deals are you doing, what kind of role are you playing at Anonymous? Um, so so yeah, so Anonymous we're a management production company. Um, it's important to know that um, you know I I don't handle any of the management side of the business. Um, our writers, directors, actors, they all have, you know, separate representation. They have their own lawyers and they're, you know, some of them have agents. Um, I handle, this is the legal affairs, strictly on the production and studio side, anonymous. Um, so I, you know, I, I might, my job is pretty, is no different than, say like a mini major studio. Um, this is the legal affairs. We don't have a, uh, we don't have any bifurcation of, of TV or film, or this is illegal. It's all encompassing. If you're going to work here, you need to be, and I, and I use the term Swiss Army knife of being legal. Uh-huh. You have to be able to do pretty much everything. And, and my lawyers like that because um, it's something different and new um, every day. And um, in terms of job security, not that I want any of them to go anywhere, that they'll be very marketable if they ever want to leave the place. They can. They don't, they're not pigeonholed to a certain um, division, you know, they're just not doing, they're not doing like legal affairs for non-scripted and that's all, that's their their scope of their knowledge. So they're negotiating deal terms across media, across, you know, types of projects and doing the deal terms. So so, so basically if if I assign a lawyer project um, in development, it's their job to take, take that project from development to you know, negotiating all the deals um, to pre-production, to production, and run the show as a production attorney, and then to delivery. So that's that's the goal. Got it. And yeah. can you explain just uh, you know, in terms of Anonymous's role as both a management company and a production entity? Obviously, managers are allowed to produce, unlike talent agents. But just you know, what's it? What's its business model? What kind of clients are you working with and what ultimately what kind of deals are you guys doing? I get that it's cross media, but you know, what, yeah. What are you guys working on regularly? Well, I, 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 I guess for us, um, you know, lately we've been more uh, TV focused, I think uh, because of the streamers um, film business really suffer in recent years, but I must say that it's making a, a slight comeback. Um, so we're now shifting a little bit to focus more on feature film and hopefully, you know, a comeback in, 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 in a, you know, in a media. Um, you know, I, I recently uh, finished um, delivering a, a project called Swan Song for Apple. It's their, one of their first uh, movies, but, it, you know, it's, there's not going to be a theatrical release going straight to streamer. Um, to Apple. And, and then uh, this past weekend, um, I didn't really have much break. We sold a project uh, to Amazon um, during the Cannes Film Festival, virtual Cannes. I wasn't there, yeah. you know. Um, so, so yeah, so the film is making a comeback, but, but if, you know, I would say that my, I would say 75% of my day is still doing TV, TV development, TV production. And, and and are those series, are they mostly, we were just talking about the difference between limited series and wh- whether or not, in fact, there was a difference between limited series and so-called mini series. But uh, when you guys are doing series, is it mostly with streamers? Is it uh, mostly limited or is there, you know, just curious to know the landscape right now. And in fact, you were just saying, you were talking about the comeback of film, but just if you could sort of describe 
what you think is happening right now in the business as compared to let's say a year ago and you know whatever trends you're you're seeing in terms of you know the bulk of the productions that are getting greenlit well i i guess the past year you know we've been pretty lucky we um you know our our production sort of went on hiatus right right around the time when COVID hit so we didn't have to um you know we weren't we didn't suffer from you know COVID shutdown and um you know to the extent like other major studios um and you know for us you know our business model is obviously to focus more on what's so-called cost plus model because even though we have um a credit facility we have um uh you know our our, our backer is you know who emerson is is um laureen Jones, steve john's widow so she's our primary backer and our business model is not is to sort of stay away from doing your traditional deficit financing with network primetime type of model to more streamers, um, you know, and, and, you know, the term cost plus is often thrown around basically means that we're um, managing cash flow. We're not necessarily deficit financing a project that we know that we're going to, you know, as, as long as we produce the project on time, on budget, we're going to recoup all our production costs plus then some. So that's what cost it. plus means. Yeah. Yeah, no, got it. Um, in term, I'm actually just curious to hear you, you speak about differences in terms of series deals uh, where there is back, where people are participating in back end, which, you know, they're always going to push for any, any producers are going to, you know, and any talent is going to uh, push for that. But, you know, whether you can speak to, you know, differences in sort of the old school uh, selling a series, you know, having it go on a traditional primetime network or traditional networking for a primetime slot. And you know what back end was back in the day, and what's possible right now in terms of back end. You know, whether it's with Disney and their new streaming bonus formula, or just whatever you can can say and comment on that. Well, I guess for us, um, you know, not not so much going back and explain the history of television in the the, the traditional model versus now. Um, going forward, I think the biggest challenge for us is. Um, being recognized as a studio co-studio um, by, you know, because there's a lot of consolidation right now and every buyer, you know, is basically trying to not work with outside studios. So it's our job to to rely on our um, packaging ability with our A-level client to, you know, have the, the strong IT with competition to, to, to create competition so that we can leverage our studio position when we take project out to market. Otherwise, they will just say, "Here's, here's a you know an episodic fee. You're a non-running producer. We're going to own everything. And here's here's your backing points, which means nothing. You know, you know the dollar, unless you have you know the dollar per point system is kind of a joke, as you guys probably you know know, um, unless you're in season three or beyond. Um, so, but but what's good about anonymous? Um, is that we're nimble enough that we don't always have to fight for a studio position. We can certainly pivot to just take a non-writing producing fee um, and just be a non-writing producer. Um, we Sometimes we would do that um, when a production is global and we don't have the infrastructure or, you know, or, or, or the ability to, to run the worldwide production. But it's something that's too expensive. It's way out of our ability we we're happy to just hand that off or we or sometimes we partner up with a uh co-studio like endeavor content or skydance or annapurna paramount tv 
um, you know, to the extent that we want to, to share in the risk of producing something. And I, you know, I gave you a heads up that I was going to ask this. So, you know, but obviously, uh, I'll leave it to you to decide how to answer. But I've always sort of wondered about um, navigating conflicts of interest when, it, and, yeah. and maybe I'm missing things, you know, in terms of you've got clients who are director, producers, and others, uh, creatives who you represent as managers, and then you come on as a production entity. So in terms of uh, protecting each side's interest, how do you guys think about that? Well, because um, our writers and directors, not talent, have independent representation, um, the conflict of interest issue isn't uh, um, a, a major problem for us, as long as there's this transparency and and consent that they know that they're you know they're you know they're negotiating with the management company. Um, you know, it doesn't preclude them from taking the deal elsewhere. You know, we and the manager who's representing the client usually has to stay uh, on the sideline. They don't get involved with the deal. They don't negotiate deals anyway. Uh, and I, I do the deal directly with the attorney or with, with the agent. So that's how I resolve the conflict issue here. Now, we, we do have a rare exception, um, not, not rare, but we do have a, a division here called a media rights um, division. And uh, they represent uh, authors, journalists, um, IP holders, um, mostly uh, uh, you know people who write books and articles. And um, you know we so whenever so for those talent, they don't they don't have representation. We actually service them as this is a legal affair. So whenever I do a deal to acquire an IP with the media rights division. I actually have to present like a list of three to five outside law firms say, pick one, we'll pay for it. They'll negotiate a deal, you know, for you, knowing that we're paying for it, but the duty of care and duty of loyalty is to you, the client, not to anonymous. Got it. Thank you so much. And how yeah. do you, how do you personally, and how does anonymous generally uh, stay on top of, you know, negotiating at the best level? Let me, well, let me let me let me uh, let me just clarify my question. I what I mean is to be on top of the best terms that people like. So, for example, an agency is going to have a ton of clients. I, I know exactly where I. Yeah. You know where I'm going. Okay. So, 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 so it, it's really hard to keep a secret in this business. People talk, even though you're not supposed to be sharing information, but people talk, you know, off the record all the time. And I know that I'm getting the best deal around town when other heads of BA are calling me, asking me if they're getting the, you know, the right deal. You know, that's when, when I know that I'm doing, I'm, I'm getting the top deal around town. Before it was the other way around. When I first started, I was calling, I was like, oh my God, am I getting screwed by Netflix? But now it's the other way around. They're calling me and say, hey, have you gotten this from Netflix? I, you know, without breaching any confidentiality, I'd be, I, I'm, I'm happy to share enough information so, to, to help guide them, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We definitely want to have you uh, guest yeah. lecture for our students who are learning to negotiate and draft these types of deals. Um, now I'm going to ask you a question without naming the streamer's name, but I heard a rumor that a certain streamer, and it might be common to others, um, really sort of enjoy having a very uh, sort of light on detail production services contract, sort of deliberately vague and that, you know, then you'd have room, you know, you have ambiguity created and they would have sort of leverage to 
to push for what they wanted down the line. Just curious if you sort of experienced that sort of thing and if you have any thoughts around what I just said. Um, I have not, to be honest with you. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, it's really, whenever we, we, we produce something as a studio, it's not just the, the BA group, you know, it's, it's our creative team. You know, we have a, a production production team. We have a really good produ- production executive. So um, whenever I, 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 we're working out a, a network license agreement or, or like a production agreement, um, it's, a t- it's, it's a team effort. You know, we have production finance weighing in. We have, you know, accounting, BA legal and, and production executive. So, um, you know, so we haven't encountered an issue, you know, that you're describing. Um, but hopefully not, you know, I, yeah. so far so good, I, you know, most buyers, I mean, generally buyers know what they're doing, they, you know, and I, I have to say like, uh, the streamers have done a really good job of hiring really, really good lawyers, you know, in the business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, then, you know, going backwards now, um, in terms of from being a law student in Southwestern scale program to where you are today, I think, you know, probably students will, will, you know, really be interested in your path and figure out, you know, mm-hmm. what, 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 you know, what you did right uh, that you would recommend and what you did not right that you recommend avoiding. Um, wow. Okay. Let's see. Um, you don't have to answer the second. Well, part. I think you, you, I think you and I sort of talked about a little bit before people jumped on, like when I, when I was trying to, well, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I, I, I didn't, uh, start law school until I was 32. Um, before that, I was, um, you know, I was a graduate student at uh, USC and I hated it. I thought I was going to be a PhD uh, student and, and be a college professor. That didn't work out. So I, I, I quit and I wanted to stay in LA because my family's here. And the only thing that sounded remotely interesting uh, was entertainment. So I took a, an agent trainee job at uh, United Talent Agency, UTA and basically worked for a, a TV lit agent who was an attorney for about two and a half, three years and realized that, oh, hey, you know what? I don't really want to be an agent, but, but business and legal affairs sound very interesting. So, um, so that's why I picked the scale program because for me, when you're in your early thirties, a, a year, that extra year in law school for me is basically opportunity cost, you know, of not working. So the two year program, made sense for me. And um, so I did the scale program from the day that I, I set foot at Southwestern, I started hustling. I started sending out, you know, letters asking for a general meeting saying, Hey, I'm in law school. We'll have an internship. And back then, you know, when you're a scale student, you have that eight week period in, in the spring, which is such an odd time to do your externship. And I, I, I you know, uh, I want to say I, I must have sent out like a couple hundred letters and emails i've gotten like maybe less than 12 responses and had like three general meetings so not a very good batting average but through through those general meetings i was able to get more general meetings eventually um i i was able to get in front of this guy named jerry langarzo who i read in the trades that he was the head of upn which became cw and upn then folded that he was going over to font t studios to head out, this is illegal. And I figured out his email formula, you know, it's like jerry.lungarzo at fox.com. Just like shot an email, put in a cold call, and he um, said, 
you know what, come in for a general meeting. And I did. And I asked him for an internship and he gave it to me. And after that, he gave me a job. Yes. And Southwestern has done a great job of placing people, you know, in internships and, and also jobs. And I've, I've seen the past three years, like a lot of uh, incoming new lawyers from Southwestern, and which is really, really good to see. Awesome. Okay. So now let's get to some dirt. Um, I mean, first of all, what can you share about the Sharks renegotiation and just any kind of fun anecdotes that you that are not breaching confidentiality that give us some perspective on the work that you're doing and just kind of the types of deals and interesting, uh, you know. Yeah, well, so the, the shark, so renegotiating Shark and Shark Tank was definitely stressful at the time. Uh, it was around the clock and, and you know, every shark has like uh, a team of lawyers that you have to deal with. But then it was like, a, there were many parties involved. There was Sony who, who was producing it along with um, Mark Burnett. So Mark Burnett has their own, have, have their lawyers. And it's for ABC who's got the network lawyers. So, so, so it's, it's really like a joint negotiation between ABC, Burnett and Sony with the sharks attorneys. And they all kind of banded together to try to leverage, um, uh, you know, a great deal, uh, you know, a richer deal for them. And I hate to say it, the strategy at the time was like, who's the weak link who's going to break rank, you know, and we, and, you know, and, um, but what we noticed during negotiations was that there, there was not enough, there was not enough money, the amount of money that we can pay them to make it worthwhile for them to, to show up. Right because they're all so rich. They don't yeah. really care about what you're paying them to, to appear in front of camera. They care about all the other stuff, like the exclusivity, their ability to do, to, to have their brand out there to, uh, you know, parlay their, their um, uh, appearance and their, their brand to, um, you know, so that they, they can actually, uh, you know, turn, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to get at is they actually made money from, from the, uh, the investments, you know, and the, the, it wasn't about the fees that we're paying them. That was, that was the, the core issue. They wanted us to do a better job of sourcing the entrepreneurs because um, what people don't realize was that less than half of people that close the deal in front of camera actually close the deal, you know, behind the camera because they still have to do their betting. They wanted us to do a better job of, you know, you know, try to figure out who these people are, do do our own due diligence, and make sure that it's actually investable, a good investment for them. But the response was like, "We're just here to make a good TV show. You're you're the you're the experts here. You know, you have a team of experts and lawyers. Um, which, if you ever get a chance to go check out the taping, like, like on the side of the the soundstage, they each have their own team of people doing research." you know, on the, on the business and they were, you know, trying to figure out they're, they're doing their due diligence. Um, so so it, it was really about getting related to the sharks. Like, so they have a team of people like literally in real time vetting, which wasn't well, not, not just real time, but, but also ask if they close the deal, it's their job to, to make sure that what they're saying, what they said on TV is, is, is accurate. And, and it's actually a good business worth investing in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was one of the big issues that they want to make sure that, you know, people are not just coming on to uh, uh, for free airtime to promote their um, product or services. 
and with no interest in actually closing a deal because that that was a big concern you know got it um and what i mean you know again obviously maintaining your confidentiality but just if you can think through either negotiations that you are really proud of i mean obviously not the details but you know what is it that that you did to really um you know do your very best in terms of getting the best possible deal you could and conversely where you sort of have some regrets you know what kind of advice would you give students and and, and lawyers uh, who are here tonight uh, with respect to that you know just to try to avoid well i think it's important to to understand that what we do as transactional attorneys is not adversarial you know the law school has a tendency to teach you to be a litigator and everything zero sum and yet the adversarial it's that's not how it works in the real world in 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 what we do as transactional lawyers you have to understand you almost have to um i don't know like check your ego at the door when you're when you're negotiating deal and just have high eq you know that 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 would be very helpful and and understand that there's this thing called shadow the future because it's such a small business if you if you um, have a bad experience on on a deal, you also you're gonna work on something else with that that opposing counsel, you know, pretty soon down the road. So you, you definitely want to build a good relationship with that person. So you, you'll get to a point where it's basically a shorthand negotiations. Like for example, everybody's been chasing this um, this story uh, coming out of China about this auntie who basically left her husband of 30 years and decided to travel, travel the country. And she, she, she had like a, uh, a blog and, um, and, and like an over a million Instagram followers. Her name is auntie Sue. And so everybody's chasing her life lights. Warner Bar is interested in doing this with us. And, um, because I have a shorthand, um, with the VA, he, we, we did our deal in literally 30 seconds in one phone call, you oh, know? Wow. And so that's, you know, so that's kind of, that that will help. So then I can then now focus on the more important issue, which is to figure out how to get her life rights because she is, you know, in China. And even though I speak the language, she has like people kind of like, you know, doing deals for her that, that don't really understand how things work in the States. And so I can focus on that rather than trying to work out a deal with Warner Brothers. Yeah, that's that's a really cool anecdote. That's a very short. That's a short deal window. Um, all right. Well, I can't help but ask you about NFTs because you know, even though they're not quite as as uh, pervasively discussed or ubiquitously discussed as they were a few weeks ago, uh, still, I'm just curious. You know, whether you have any opinions about them, whether your deals have included them, ex- expressly excluded them, and I have a couple more questions for you. And then, if you, and everyone else here, start. Sure. So, 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 so for me, NFT. I mean, I mean, I, I guess. We have a lot of lawyers here. For me, it's no, it's it's just another way of, it's just another form of um, IT, right? No different than a podcast or a book or um, or an article. I, I, I just legally, I, I feel like NFT doesn't really add too much value, you know, in terms of copyright ownership. I don't know, but I feel like you know, there, there could be potential for, you know, you know, in the, in the realm of merchandising and memorabilia. I just, I mean, yeah, yeah, we, we did option this, uh, MFT content called 
Aku, AKU, about this um, um, black uh, astronaut who's a who's a who's a little boy, and everybody's been calling like, oh, what, what what's your secret? What's the deal here? I'm like, I, I don't know. It's just a straight up option. <laughs> no idea. I I I I don't know. Yeah. I think, and I actually have a question for you that I'm already going to interject. Um, but I just, with respect to NFTs, I think they are really just a, a, a really nice merchandising um, aspect. But what's interesting is the buyers don't realize that they're not getting the copyright. So sometimes they might maybe regret what they're paying. Um, there's a question uh, regarding, from, from one of our audience, uh, regarding the pursuit of the life rights with, for the auntie that you mentioned out of China. That, you know, the question mm -hmm. is to you, why does one need her life rights if she's already now in the public eye? If she's a public figure, essentially, at this point. Do you do you want my um, anonymous yes. answer or my lawyer answer? Both. Both. <laughs> okay, anonymous answer because it was it's our client, the New York Times. I, I must, for the record, her. It's absolutely necessary to get a life rights and to attach New York Times and the journalist as part of the story. Um, as a lawyer, off the record, no. <laughs> Why? Right? I mean, what's what's proprietary about her story? You can certainly come up with, uh, you know, just, I don't know, a story about, I don't know, a Korean lady who had a, you know, decided to leave home and go on a solo trip around the world, you know, but, but you know, there's nothing, there's, I mean, what what makes the story great is her as a person, and she's not an actor, right? So it's like, you know, she's she's such a sweet lady. If you ever go on YouTube, Google her, like you'll see it. Like she's such a wonderful human being. But that's you're not buying her. You're buying her story. But her story is not that unique that you can't just come up with it on your own. So. Well, and I see a couple of my students here, so I'll I'll chime in with my thought, which is to say, and I think a lot of executives and lawyers think this way, which is, you know, if the price is not punishing, you're just buying the insurance policy against dealing with a legal hassle later, whether, you know, notwithstanding the fact that you'd probably prevail. And if you're buying the personality described, she's a lovely darling and a great marketer of her own story and has a following and a presence, then you just have that angle to work off of. But right. from a legal right. perspective, 100%, uh, we totally agree. Yeah, um, life, life right is a legal fiction. It's, it's two things. It's exclusivity and covering not to sue. Exactly. There, right. yeah. there you go. Perfect. That's a beautiful summation. So um, my final question to you for the moment, and I'll, I'll open it up, is just, you know, overall advice for our students and for emerging entertainment and media transactional lawyers in terms of building a career, keeping up with the with the trends and the space. What, what's your advice? Well, I, I think you know, we talk, we, we touch on networking, which is very important. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just be completely honest with you though. I, I knew at the time when I was, um, uh, at Southwestern that I was going to have a tough time competing with, because I was a little older with people coming out of Harvard law school and tier one law school, you know, and, you know, I, I'm not going to get that big shiny law firm job. And when, and if I apply, um, to a job, my resume is going to get lost because they're looking at that, you know, the top tier, you know, whatever the the criteria. You know, I I I really have to rely on my hustle and, and my 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 um 
my relationship skills. And my internship for me was really a job interview. I took it seriously. And, um, you know, I, and I knew at the time that every lawyer has like a uh, pile of stuff that, that, that they can't get through. I was that guy that walked around to, to, to all individual lawyers and said, can I find a way to reduce that pile for you? And just made myself useful. And, um, and then the, the, the big thing I was working on at the time during my externship was, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, Fox has, had closed this deal that, no, that was $150,000. And at the time, you know, there was, people were still selling DVDs. Like, it's basically a deal to package um, B movies, DVDs that Fox had produced in their tw- the last 20, 30 years. And they sell them at like Walmart or at like gas stations. And they were trying to package these, the DVDs and they needed somebody, a lawyer to go through the titles and do what's called legal rights clearance. Um, and the deal has been closed for like a year, two years. And, but just been sitting there because no one had the time to go through like 40, 50 titles to do legal rights clearance. I, that was my goal. It was an eight week um, externship. I got 40 titles to clear. So I, I was like, I got to do five a day. And that's what I did. So by the time when my externship ended, I had to clear all 30 something. It, was, it wasn't 40, it was like 36, 37 titles. And I walked into uh, Jerry's office and I said to him, Hey, I just helped you secure that, that deal. It's $150,000. That's way more than my year one or, or my two year salary. Can I get a job? He kind of looked at me and was like, are you kidding me? How dare you come into my office and, and ask that question? But he was, he thought it was kind of funny. And then he was like, good job. We'll talk. And then two weeks later, he offered me a job. I mean, you so. showed you're a great negotiator for yourself, but that's awesome. Um, <laughs> I have a question from one of our audience, uh, Cindy, well, actually both from Cindy and Neville Johnson. Um, the question is to you, Ken, what do you think of the new Amazon statement of policy on diversity and programming? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I, I don't know if I, I can't really speak to it because I, I'm, I, I'm not read it. Um, but I know that diversity and inclusion is important for me, you know, for somebody who's, you know, an Asian American. And I'll be completely honest with you. And this is a, we can have another podcast about this, about my experience as an Asian American uh, person in the business. But when I started in this business, this is like early 2000, I was actually, I had to be mentally, emotionally prepared for uh you know, discrimination and unfair treatment because knowing that people are look at Asians very differently, you know, you know, there's, I mean, one of my favorite shows, The Bachelorette right now on TV, like no Asian person, you know, so there's this, you know, I, I, I mean, again, I can go on and on, but it's something that, that you, you know that, that we need to do better, but there's, there's no, um, every, you know, my experience as an Asian American is very different than say somebody who's from Southeast Asia. So, so, you know, I, I am very mindful of the issues. I, I, you know, um, you know, and I'll do what I can, um, to make sure that there's diversity and inclusion, uh, at anonymous. Um, but it takes, uh, efforts at a highest level. The leadership has to be on board, you know? 
and things have gotten better, but still, it's not it's not great. Yeah, and and, and we I would like to follow up with you and give you some room to speak to further to that. And in fact, Cindy and Neville are following up and asking you to drill down and say, you know, what elements would you recommend, you know, for anonymous as far as diversity and just, you know, what are you what are you seeing room for improvement? I mean, obviously you you are. And so what would you want people to do differently? Well, I think we, you know, like, like I said, like leadership has to be on board and we, we have created a diversity inclusion, um, uh, um, um, you know, group that that's, you know, it's, it's managers, uh, assistants and, and executives that we would have like, you know, discussions on a um, regular basis to figure out how we, um, you know, promote diversity here at Anonymous. Um, you know, we, we have a new, uh, head of business operations. She's Pakistani. So, so we have made an effort to really kind of, um, be more diverse. So it's not going to change overnight, but it's something that you just have to be mindful of and, and just have to, you know, have a strong voice and just try to push, you know, um, the agenda forward. As much as you can. Yeah, and it's push not beyond easy. performative, you know, and push beyond yeah. the performative so that people are not just having their token show. Um, well, I'd love right. to open it up yeah. to some, some questions. Uh, Dana's got one. Um, uh, so Dana asks even the reliance on pedigree needs to change pay equity, people with disabilities, people of all colors, shapes, and sizes. So that's more of a share of, of a statement and 100%. Uh, thanks, Dana, for that. Um, uh, so yeah, please guys and gals and everyone uh, here, um, please share any thoughts. Well, you know, you know I'll, I'll respond a little bit to, 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 to the last comment. You know, I, 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 I agree with that statement. And for me, when I, when I, when I look to hire an attorney, you know, I'm, I'm not really looking for pedigree. I'm looking for, and, and this is true for a lot of employers. Um, you, you're going to be spending a lot of time with, with that person, right? You want to make sure that this is somebody that, that's going to work well with your team. And, um, you know, I, I have experience where we hire somebody who was like Harvard law graduate, you know, top of the class and, and, and the person turned out to be great in terms of legal analysis, but couldn't make a decision when you're doing production legal. It's like, there's no case law. There's no thing that you can cite to. You, you got to make a decision on the go and it's risk assessment. You know, you got to stand behind the decision. If you screw up, you own it. And if you really screw up, you get fired, but you have to be okay with that. And this person was so crippled that couldn't do that kind of job. So that pedigree meant absolutely nothing. You know, I have to say, I've heard that kind of feedback and I obviously don't mean to disparage anyone from, you know, top law schools by any stretch. But I think one thing that's really excellent about our law school is that combination of, you know, great academic training, but also the practical training and just fostering a, a culture that really looks to people just being able to get, you know, hit the ground running and get working and not just be in sort of. Yeah. You know, and, and also just, just, just be the good, good person, be a good human being, not, not somebody who's like arrogant, like, Hey, look at my pedigree, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That actually rubs people the wrong way. Yeah. I'm going to put my students on the spot without naming them, but I would love for you guys and, and folks to, um, ask a question that might, you know, might be relating to what our class, our class is about, and anyone else who's here, our alums, 
or other folks, don't be shy. You can chat the question to me and I'll call it out or you can raise your virtual hand or just yell at me. Um, okay, well then I'm just gonna keep asking you stuff. Uh, Ken, while folks get comfortable. I, I think I do think that people are a little zoomed out. I personally have done like a million uh, Zoom events in the last year, I'm sure we all have. So, um, you know, just so I can understand, uh, you know, um, you guys are basically regularly negotiating where you're the production company, you know, right of record, and then it's just your part of the deal. And it sounds like mm -hmm. you've got studios coming to you to partner so that you guys can render services through your maybe can you just can explain it a little bit more back to the just your anonymous um, functionality there um in terms of because if, if you guys are brought on then i'm assuming you're always pulling from your own client base right to render services we, we don't have to we work with um you know uh we, we work with uh, pretty much everyone around town um i i, I guess i'll just give you a couple examples. Um, best case scenario for anonymous in terms of synergy is uh, is is the swan song movie I, I, I sort of mentioned earlier. Um, so it, it's with our client, this guy named Ben Cleary, who was a first time filmmaker who won an Academy Award for a short film a few years back. It was his very first movie. We packaged that script with our client Mahersha Ali, mm -hmm. and and then we sold it to Apple, and then um, we. We're the studio, and then you know, then Glenn Close and Aquafina jumped on, and and then we we you know we were the studio, we, we produced it, and it's going to get delivered in the next few weeks or so. Um, so that's the that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario um, um, would be that you know we uh, um, and this actually happened only once since I've been since I've been here that you you do something with your client and. It was a bad experience, and the client get upset, and they fire you. You know that has to happen one, you know, once year before on a project that 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 fell apart. You know, and and then, um, you know, but it doesn't preclude us from from working with other uh, um, non anonymous clients. You know, this, this movie that we sold uh, to Amazon just over the weekend. Um, no one, there's no one, the filmmaker, not an anonymous client, and the three actors are not anonymous clients. So okay. we work with everybody. Good to yeah. know. I now have many, many questions for you. I'm going to actually ask Sun Kim, whose virtual hand is raised to enunciate their, their question, and then I'll take some, then I'll read out some questions from the chat to me to call out. Okay. Sun. Hi. Hi. Um, so Ken, what is your favorite thing about working in entertainment law and as a transactional lawyer? My favorite thing? Mm -hmm. uh, well, in terms of, in terms of fun factor, I, I must say that I had the most fun working on Dancing with the Stars as a production attorney. You know, I, I got a chance to um, be on set during the tapings and, and, and learn about ballroom and ballroom dancing, you know, not, I, I didn't take the lessons, but I learned about, you know, the, the different criteria and, and I just had a, a blast, you know, just was able to be on set and watch the performances and watch the, the, you know, to be close to production. That was really enjoyable. But in terms of 
So that, that's the fun factor. You know, mm-hmm. if I wanted to just stay in the fun, fun zone, I would have stayed in that job forever, but <laughs> I wanted to move up the ranks and, and, you know, make more money and, and eventually run a department. So for me, it's like my, my mentally, it's not about so much having fun, but, but finding something that's interesting enough that keeps me engaged and coming to anonymous, you know, for, I feel like it's a good fit for me because it's smaller. Um, uh, I'm doing, uh, you know, different things every day. I, I, I also do like corporate legal type of stuff. Mm. Um, I'm not just like, um, an attorney. I, I, I didn't like my job at Sony because I was just a business affairs guy. I was doing the same four types of deal all day long every day. And mm-hmm. to me, that's just not interesting, you know, mm. but yeah, it just depends on the person. Some people actually like that. Some people don't like to do business affairs. They just want to do legal and that's totally fine. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so Christina Cavazos asks with such a busy schedule, how do you handle time management and keeping yourself apprised of the, of like the industry and everything that's going on in terms of deal making and the whole business? Well, you have to keep re- uh, reminding yourself, and I tell Nick Giannis, who's my who's my intern, that the work doesn't stop. It doesn't matter if you close like ten deals in a day or you 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 crank out like five agreements. You're gonna have more t- the next day. So the work does not stop. You just have to learn to prioritize and learn when to walk away, and um, and not to not to be freaked out knowing that it's just, there, there's no end to your pile. That that's just the way it is. Yeah. yeah I can, I hear that. Uh, by the way, Madeline Cohen uh, is uh, starting scale two and wanted to say thank you so much for your time and insight on the East Asian experience in the industry. Um, Cindy Neville Johnson have a new question for you, which is what are the areas of life um, uh, that, uh, are people interested in? Like, you know, Maybe Cindy, you can elaborate on what you meant by that if that's not clear to Ken, but. What, what do you mean by that? Yes, yes, Cindy, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll tell us, Cindy. Uh, for tell, uh, yeah, uh, you know what? Let me, let me come back to that question. Yes, another question that I think was interesting as well in terms of what do you think is gonna happen to unions and guilds with, uh, with, the, you know, with new media going where it's going? Did you say unions and yeah and, and you know in other words what's going to happen with the unions uh, in terms of new media what changes do you anticipate in terms of new media um well I, I mean I think things are okay for now in, in terms of the unions with with the, the 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 streamers but I feel like every there's like a five to 10 year cycle every, you know, I'm sure that there'll be new issues because the business is changing uh, pretty fast that there will be issues during the next round of negotiations. That's going to potentially cause a big scare that there could be a potential strike. And then, but then people will come to their senses and work it out or not. Um, I mean, for the, of the, I started in 2007 of, you know, since, and, and there's this like, People said there's a 10-year cycle that every 10 years there's a, there's a strike, you know, and that did happen in 2008. Um, I think that almost happened 10 years later, but didn't. I just feel like, you know, 
things are changing really fast and I'm sure we're going to have issues, um, you know, between the unions and the buyers. So it, but that's, that's okay that it happens. Yeah. And it, I, I've been doing VOD since the early 2000s. I have to say, I think it should stop being called new media, but, um, but obviously it still is sometimes. Um, yeah. So I have, I have some more questions for you. Um, this is from Nate. Uh, so he says, thank you so much. And asked in the beginning of this, you alluded to the attorneys you work with as Swiss army knives. What from their background made them appealing, you know, as a Swiss army knife? So in other words, I guess, how did you assess them? Yeah. So just basically, you know, someone I know will, will actually uh, do their homework and, and is willing to learn and understand that the learning process doesn't stop. I think oftentimes people graduate from law school, they're like, yay, no more school for me. But guess what? School is just starting. When you start your new job, that's when the real education begins. And, and have that understanding that uh, learning on the job is very important and no one's going to hold your hand. It's not like you have a teacher who's going to, you know, have a class and, and, and you have to know how to self-study and, 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 and read and do your homework. So that's what I, so that's what I look for. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy Sultan, who um, I should out as having worked at Netflix. Um, he's a great student. He asked, um, uh, can you speak to, you know, your background in reality, dealing with those series and film and, and, and your recommendation, whether you'd recommend one focusing, you know, in one direction or another or doing it all at once. I mean, it sounds like you currently do everything all at once, but in terms of recommending to emerging attorneys. Well, I, I mean, that, that's a tough one to answer because um, I don't know what the market place is right now for people who are coming out of law school. But for me, uh, in 2007 and 2008, at the time, because of the writer's strike, there was like an explosion of non-scripted production. And that's where everyone was hiring. And I was, when I was at Fox as a junior lawyer, I was doing like, you know, a lot of admin stuff. I was putting together grids, I was doing legal rights clearances, and I was looking for that next step, but I couldn't find anything in the scripted space. I was able to find it in the non-scripted space at BBC, so that's why I transitioned over. Um, and it turned out to be a great move. Um, because then I, I get to really be close. You know, it, it, it's like, it's about what it's feeling, try to feel out what you want to do, right? When you're doing non-scripted production, you're actually like, you're very close to production, but you're also on call all the time. Um, some people love that type of work, um, but some people don't really want to do production legal. So it just depends on, you know, what, what's interesting to you. I'm you know? called, and, and just know that. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to add, like, uh, what I think you're getting at is on call all the time because it's unscripted. So it's you're dealing with real life situations and circumstances that create risks and, and challenges and, and as opposed to everything being so perfectly planned out. Right. It's not it was, it was it's definitely not institutionalized. And and it's actually kind of fun to to issue spot um, and also come up with solutions. But a lot of times, like attorneys don't like that type of work because, again, there's no rule book. There's, you can't cite any case laws. You're, you're, you're there on your own making risk assessment. And that, that, that could be kind of scary for, for, for a lawyer. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I have a little bit more in the chat here and we're going to wind down shortly. Anyone else with questions who hasn't yet sent me 
a, t a chat text or, you know, just please raise your virtual hand. You know, I see a trademark attorney in the house, so I can't help but ask, and he knows who he is, uh, Steven Strauss, also an adjunct professor at Southwestern. I'm curious, you know, what kind of trademark issues, I'm assuming they come up more in, in, in the unscripted space, just, you know, dealing with marks and stuff, but curious if you guys have run up against those regularly. Uh, yeah, yes and no. The biggest trademark issue that um, we're running into right now is uh, the use of the Olympic rings. And, but luckily, because like you said, there are great trademark lawyers out there and also um, fair use and first amendment lawyers out there that they're just a phone call away. And luckily I, I'm able to use outside counsel. So I, my go-to guy is this guy named Alonzo Wickers at Davis Wright Tremaine. Um, and Whatever he says, I, I will, you know, good enough for me. So, so that's, that's another thing too about being a lawyer. Uh, you know, when, when you, in, in, even at my level, you're not, you're not expected to know everything, you know, but don't pretend that you know everything because you, you're, you know, this, this is so much, you know, and I, I don't have the expertise in trademark. I know the basics. Um, it's always nice to rely on somebody who's like very, very, um, uh, you know, have like expertise in that world. Like first amendment, you know, is, is a big thing too. So we have to, you know, consult outside counsel on that as well. I think it's something super important is to also just know what you don't know completely and know when to turn, you know, to yeah. others for their expertise. Um, this yeah. might be my last question. And uh, it's, it's, it's from Cindy and Neville again which is, it's a, it's a great one, you know, what are people, I mean, there's an incredible amount of content, right? And there's probably more content, there are, you know, eyeballs to watch. Um, but what are people, what are the trends as, what, as far as what people are looking for these days, or what at least the production companies and studios and streamers and networks think the people are looking for in terms of, is it, is there like a huge focus on like home remodeling or car renovation or survival or cooking? I know Netflix always talks about, you know, doing a lot of health and-, and The answer is, I don't really know, and and I pretty much don't really care because that's not my world. That's a creative space. I don't do creative. I don't know any. I, I'm like the worst person to be doing creative. I I would see something, I'd be like, oh my god, this this is this thing is great. It turned out to be a total bomb, and vice versa. I would say like this is terrible, and it's like the biggest hit ever. You know, so I don't know. All right, I actually take it back. I do have one personal question for you, and then I will. Uh see if anyone else has any final remarks and we'll then say good night in terms of you know and i'm not uh an expert in unscripted i you know i look to folks like mitch federer actually to guide me sometimes and stuff that i don't know um but with respect to let's say 99 day fiance and all the housewife shows where i understand that the ultimate platforms or buy or networks treat those um each season as a distinct property and and don't treat them as as you know derivatives of each other. Like, or for example, let me be more specific with the Housewives show that Atlanta is not a derivative of the original or New Jersey, right? Housewives of and you fill in the blank location. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm curious just if you can uh, if you know if, you know if you want to speak to that you know about the the way that these buyers are treating the definition of derivatives and what's behind it. Well, it, it's not really derivative, right? They 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 they're calling it a format, right? Um, and sometimes I wonder if, if you uh, say, for example, like Dancing with the Stars, it's actually a format that was imported from, you know, 
UK from, from a show called Strictly Come Dancing. And Shark Tank was actually a, a show that, that, that's called Dragon's Den in Japan that, got, that was, you know, created, that, that was licensed all over the world as Dragon's Den. And it got picked up by um, Canada and they call it Shark Tank. And then, then it came to the States as Shark Tank. Right. So it's, it's, it's really a format. Um, and that's a lot of times when, you, when you're developing non-scripted, they want to own everything because the margins are so slim in terms of um, exploiting a non-scripted show. For them, the, their real money is exploiting what's called the so-called format in various local productions and international. Um, you know, like, I know there's a, there was a show like 20 years ago called Temptation Island that had like two or three seasons here. Um, in, in for Fox, but it was it was like a pretty big money maker for Fox internationally, especially in um, Scandinavia and, and, and France, where they produced like eight or nine seasons, and I th- I believe still going on to this day, you know. Um, so it's it's really a, a, a format play, not not necessarily a, a derivative. Understood. What I was getting at, I get the distinction of a format versus a derivative, and some of these shows rise to the level of format, and some, I'm assuming, don't, you know, because there's many, many versions of the same thing in some instances. Mm-hmm. I was getting at in terms of maintaining being attached, right? So you are product. So in other words, that there's going to be different production companies rendering services on all of these different, um, you know, yeah, and, and and that's yeah, and that's part of your negotiation. If if, if you're the one that came out with the idea, even though the the buyer is buying all the rights. You want to make sure that you're attached to produce all subsequent and derivative productions, that you're the lead production company. But then if they don't, con- that's my point, if then they don't consider those other productions to be derivatives, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and bore everybody, but that's what uh, I was sort of getting at. Um, but I do have now, I mean, unless you have something to say about that, um, I do have now truly the final question from my okay. student. Um, who asks, this is from Jeremy, to hear your thoughts about the consolidation in the industry with Warner Brothers and Discovery, Amazon and MGM, NBC Universal, maybe CBS Viacom next. How does Anonymous stay strong in this sea of consolidation, uh, you know, with respect to your packaging and just everything else? It's a good question. Well, I, I think for us, you know, it, it, because we are um, a company that, that has like, you know, several, um, um, ways of several businesses that, that generate revenue that we're, we're I, we we think and we hope we're going to be okay. I you know our you know you're always going to need talent, right? So our manager side we're, we're going to be fine as long as we represent high quality talent. People are always going to want um, content and IP, and if we have you know if we if we secure um, the IP, then then we're going to force the hand a little bit to, to, for them to treat us um, as a, as a studio production company. Um, But, you know, it's, it, 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 I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, we could be completely shut out in, you know, several years from now because of all the vertical integration. I I don't know. You know, you could consolidate and you could join forces with some others and, and, I'm just putting that out there. But how? How? Uh, yeah, I don't know. If that's that's possible. You know, we can certainly form like uh, some kind of loose first look deal with 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 a with a conglomerate. But I'm not sure how that would work. You know? Yeah. Or maybe band together with a few other companies. But um, but but I digress. I want to thank everyone for coming and thank you so much, Kenneth Wu, for your time and sage advice and everything that you share with us today. 
Thank you for listening to A Conversation With Podcast, hosted by Southwestern Law School's Biederman Institute. This series is generously supported by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information about upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu.